This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. Dr. J. Ligon Duncan III is Chancellor and CEO of Reformed Theological Seminary, where he is also the John E. Richard Professor of Systematic and Historical Theology. He was Senior Pastor of First Presbyterian PCA in Jackson, Mississippi for 17 years, and he's co-founder of the Gospel Coalition. For eight years, he was President of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, and in 2004 and five, he was Moderator of the Presbyterian Church in America. He's the author and editor of a number of books, among which is Does Grace Grow in Winter? And he's a contributor to many volumes. One of my favorites among his essays is a critique. He published in 1996, The Intellectual and Sociological Origins of the Christian Reconstructionist Movement. And we may get to that. If you only know Lig from YouTube or the web or the Gospel Coalition, you might not know that he earned his Ph.D. in the University of Edinburgh, where he wrote his dissertation, The Covenant Idea in Antonicene Theology. That's theology before the Nicene Council, and that was in 1995. That's right. Contrary to the claims of some influential voices, covenant theology was not a 17th century invention. It was not even a 16th century invention. It's a way of reading Scripture and doing theology that has been in the Church— and in Christian theology since the first quarter of the second century A.D. Lig is on campus today and tomorrow to address our graduating students. Hi, Lig, and welcome to Office Hours. It's great to be with you, Scott. So were you always Reformed? What happened to you? How did you become Reformed? I grew up in a Christian home. My father was an elder in a Presbyterian church. My mother was the choir director at our church, so I grew up very much involved in the life of the church, had faithful, Reformed pastors from my earliest days, probably like a lot of evangelical youth. And I think you've got some of this in your own background. I was reading some of your biographical material a few weeks ago, and Uh I thought, yep, Scott and I had some similarities (laughs) on that. You know, I was a teenager in the 70s. The great popularizers at that time were the dispensationalists. And so I got more than a little of that in my bloodstream. Now, very thankfully, my pastors would challenge me on that. I remember going into my pastor's office with a copy of Hal Lindsey's The Late Great Planet (laughs) Earth. And my pastor's reaction to the book was uh, less than positive. So, you know, like a lot of youth growing up in Bible-believing churches, I didn't know what a consistent Reformed theology looked like. Even though I'd memorized the Shorter Catechism, it really started coming together for me in seminary. Uh, So I would have been default setting reform, certainly reform soteriology wise, but knowing what that meant, especially from the standpoint of covenant theology, redemptive history, that was something that really started coming together for me in seminary. So you really are a son of the church. And, yes. and a covenant child, That's so, right. which is a great blessing. In case the listener doesn't know what we mean, what we mean is that in our understanding of the way God ordinarily works, a child is born to Christian parents, baptized into the church, not that baptism saves, but it's a sign and a seal of what God does. And then in time, God the Holy Spirit grants new life to that child. That's our hope and expectation, our prayer. child is catechized, makes profession of faith, and there isn't necessarily a great crisis or... Um, 
necessarily a shattering experience. That's just being a covenant child. So you really don't remember any time when you didn't believe. You always yeah, have believed. Yeah, I've, I've always great. known that I was a sinner in need of a Savior. And, of course, you grow in time over what both sides of that means. I <laughs> can remember, I think, I can, you know, sometimes you only remember what you think you remember. But <laughs> exactly. I think I can remember by, say, six or seven years old, having conversations with my mother about what it means to have faith in Christ. Sure. Good, good, basic theological conversations. Mom was sort of the theologian of the home. She read theological books. She was a university professor. Uh-huh. She taught in the music department. My dad was a faithful elder who loved the catechism and the confession of faith. But when it came to talking theology, mom was the one who talked theology That's with me. And so by that stage, I'm having conversations with mom about what it means to believe and what faith is. And, you know, I wouldn't have known that terms or categories, but we were talking about things like the nature of faith, the warrant of faith, things that theologians talk about all the time, and she was helping me work through those things. And the shorter catechism then really is in your blood. You were nurtured on it. Very much so. So I feel like I'm interviewing B.B. Warfield. <laughs> Right or Charles Hodge, because there are, I estimate, fewer than 500,000 confessional Reformed people in North America. By that, I mean Reformed or Presbyterian people holding the Westminster Standards or the Heidelberg Catechism, Canons of Door, Belgian Confession, that sort of thing. So most Americans tell a different kind of story about their spiritual journey. Uh, I was, as a young man, in a Southern Baptist congregation. It went from Unitarianism to a Southern Baptist congregation, and so my introduction to Christianity was altar calls and that piety and that approach to the Christian life. So I'm a Gentile grafted in, but you are the Israel of God. Um, so how did you know? I always like to ask guests who are ministers, because you and I both teach seminary students, and one of the questions that you have been getting all your career and that I get all the time is, how do I know whether I'm called to be a minister? So how did you work that out? Several things happened. One thing my parents did a great job of is they never put a vocational expectation on me. You know, in a lot of circles, as you'll know, because of evangelical piety, the idea is if you're a pious person that loves God, you ought to be a minister. Yeah. And that can produce a lot of damage. Sure. <laughs> you know, people that aren't called to the ministry that feel like they have to do that, et cetera. My parents never did that. They were always, Lig, we want you to do what the Lord has called you to do. Whatever you do, do it with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength as unto the Lord, and we are going to be happy. So I had wonderful support from my parents. But I was interested in the Bible and theology. And as a 14-year-old, I was still struggling with assurance. And I think part of that was experiential. It was because I knew that I continued to disobey. Sure. And I was trying to figure out how all of that worked. And I went to a Presbyterian youth conference the summer of my 14th year where the pastor preached expositionally on Ephesians. And before the first sermon was over in Ephesians 1, suddenly I understood something experientially that I had not – even though I had memorized the Shorter Catechism, I realized that long before I had ever reached out in faith to God, he had reached out to grace in me and that I loved him because he first loved me. And that was Copernican for me. And I think at that very point, I thought, okay, I want to help people like this man has helped me. Mm. And my youth pastor was really instrumental in my life. He was a RTS student. Who was this? Uh, John Hutchinson was his name. And where were you? And I was in Greenville, South Carolina, okay. at Second Presbyterian Church. And Paul Settle, who mm-hmm. you will know, was my pastor. And that just poured into me. It was just ordinary means of grace, just caring for students. And by and, that, you mean that the minister 
was in the pulpit week by week preaching the gospel, administering the sacraments, and just doing regular Showing things. us how to pray, yeah. um, teaching us how to get in the Word, how to live the Christian life. And it was just a wonderful experience. And I think that was very formative for me. So really, from the time I was 14 years old, in my heart, I was preparing for ministry. I also went to the elders a couple of years later and said, could you tell me if you see any gifts for ministry in me? And the pastor really took me under his wing and kind of watched me. And the elders let me do some things in the church to test my gifting. And that was incredibly helpful, too. Yeah. I mean, you you can't replace the opportunity to teach a Sunday school class or, you know, just little things like that. Um, I'm grateful for my home congregation, my first Reformed congregation. They gave me opportunity to teach, I think, the children, sixth grade or something. And that was my first opportunity to teach. And uh had you know other opportunities and where people got to sort of look at me and evaluate and, and either encourage or discourage. And um, that's invaluable, really, as you're trying to investigate your call. So, listener, if you're thinking about seminary and you're thinking about your future, your vocation, these are things that you can do. Have you talked to your pastor? Have you talked to your elders? Have you taken advantage of these sorts of opportunities to test your gifts? And, of course, you may still be doing that when you go to seminary, right? Seminary is a place to explore that. Absolutely. Sometimes people think they have to be a finished product and then they come to school and then we're supposed to stamp them and say, yes, we agree with you. No, you, you're going to explore. I wasn't sure about whether I was going to be a pastor until my internship. And it was my summer internship, which was actually quite a difficult experience in many ways. We lived in a fifth wheel trailer in a parking lot behind a church in Bakersfield. And uh, that was a challenge. They were wonderful people, but uh, there were lots of challenges that summer. But coming out of that, I thought, this is what I want to do. I, wow. want, to be, I want to be a preacher. That's terrific. Well, and same thing, we see this happening with our students all the time. In the course of serving in the church, you have confirmed what you're supposed to do for the Lord. And now you're a seminary chancellor. You're not even a president. (laughs) So a chancellor, you supervise, I guess, in some sense, a whole bunch of campuses. Right. That title was invented probably a decade ago because we had men that were leading local campuses that we wanted to call presidents. And so you needed to give some name to the guy that was coordinating It was all either of that. chancellor or pope. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and there's not a good track record with pope, so we thought we'd go with chancellor. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Yeah, before you know it, you'd be hiring some guy named Luther uh-huh. and everything could go haywire. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. So you are an educator and have been for a long time. And I won't prejudice your answer, but I'm curious as to what you see now in incoming seminary students now as compared to when you started, because you and I started teaching about the same time. Scott, it's interesting. I ask that question. Every seminary that I go to, I ask the same question. So it is one that I'm interested in, and I get the same answer everywhere I go. I'm told, and and of course, I'm talking about mostly our circles, and I'm talking circles where there's a high view of Scripture, there's a high view of the gospel, there's even a warm embrace of Reformed theology. And I ask, what are you seeing in students today? And here's what I hear. These students are very motivated and earnest. They're eager to learn, but they know less Bible and less theology than the generation before. Maybe less history? Absolutely true. And I find I spend more time with them learning how to write term papers? Totally true. Those kinds of things? I hear that everywhere. And I think, you know, partly that's the educational system passes on to us. Those of us who teach at the seminary level have to clean up 
what the earlier stages of education didn't do a good job of. I'll say what Lake is not quite saying, and that is the universities are failing our children. Oh, absolutely. That we're, mom and dad, you're spending a ton of money in the university, unless you're going to a very specific set of schools, and Lake and I probably are thinking of some of the same schools, and they're not the ones that you might assume, unless you're going very deliberately to a small circle of schools, there's a at least a likelihood or a possibility, we'll put it that way, that you're spending a lot of money and your children aren't necessarily getting the same education that you got or that your parents got. That's exactly right. Is that overstated? No. When I was at Edinburgh in 1988, they introduced for the first time a thesis and writing seminar. And they had to do it because of the Ivy League graduates. The Ivy League Divinity School graduates did not know how to write a paper. In fact, I helped with the seminar, and it blew my mind because we were expected in seminary to know how to write a paper, to know how to articulate a thesis and an argument. And that was 30 years ago. Correct. And so it's even more so today. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I'd say one of my biggest challenges is to get students to articulate a point of view and then to defend it. That's not really how they're taught to think and to argue. Well, one of the things I mentioned in the introduction is your interest in covenant theology. And I want to get to that before we run out of time, because this is the part of Lig Duncan that not everybody knows. You teach a course on covenant theology, have for a long time, and you did your doctoral work in, I don't know if it's too strong to say groundbreaking, but you did some very significant work that hadn't really been done, at least not in English, on patristic covenant theology that has been very helpful to me. I've tried to not add anything to it, but try to transmit what I've learned from you, and you were my starting point. For example, we look at Barnabas very closely in our covenant theology seminar, and I survey Barnabas. Barnabas, Irenaeus, and Justin on covenant for my early church class, my ancient church class. And one of the things I want them to know is that all this stuff that we talk about relative to covenant theology isn't something that was invented, as I said at the outset, in the 16th or 17th century, despite claims to the contrary. That's exactly right. How did you get there? Who tipped you off to well, go I mean, look at Barnabas? You, you are, among other things, an expert in Protestant scholasticism, and I think that's really how I got interested in covenant theology. You and I were doing our work in a time frame where people were saying that the Protestant scholastics had deviated from the theology of Calvin and, in fact, had invented Calvinism and that Calvin wasn't a Calvinist. And that was very popular until Richard Muller's thesis was put into print. And then Richard Muller continued to do work and pump out students. I really think Richard's view has won the day amongst people who know what they're talking about in the field of Protestant scholasticism. But I got interested. I was interested in covenant theology because I had studied with Palmer Robertson, and that had really gotten me excited about the importance importance of understanding the covenants for redemptive history and for theology. And I started wondering, I wonder how this stuff developed. Because, of course, we were reading, though we read historical material, we were reading some of the modern expositors of Reformed Covenant theology, whether it was Meredith Klein or John Murray or B.B. Warfield. It was one English language survey. When you and I started, which was written by Voss, it was his inaugural lecture early in the 20th century that didn't get translated into English for a long time. And outside of that, histories of covenant theology were hard to find, and those that existed were mostly wrong. Exactly. 
Exactly right. One of the reasons I love Burkhoff is Burkhoff is amazingly helpful in his historical introductions to yeah. Covenant of Works and Covenant of Grace in at least sprinkling the breadcrumbs for you as to Yeah, here go look at this, go look at that. Right. So I got interested in that and I started wondering where did the magisterial reformers latch onto this and why does Luther not? And what was Luther's experience with late medieval nominalism and how did that impact his view of covenant and pact and all that sort of stuff. And in the course of that, I realized, even when I was interacting with people that I disagreed with historically, like J. Wayne Baker and Charles McCoy, who get the whole Calvin versus the Calvinist thing completely wrong. I want my students to pay attention to this. (laughs) (laughs) You students are listening to this. Lig Duncan agrees with me. I just want you to know. They look at me funny. Your professor is right. (laughs) Because we have these discussions in class, and these very names come up. But you'll know, you know, the volume that they did, Fountainhead of Federalism, they're trying to prove an old wrong thesis in terms of the relation of Bullinger and Calvin. But what they inadvertently do show is that all of the early reformers appealed to patristic sources for what they were doing. In other words, they were saying, we're not inventing this theology of the covenants. We're not only expounding the Bible for you, we're expanding the Bible for you the way the fathers expounded the Bible. Johannes Oikolampadius. Right. He is an early Zurich reformer commenting on Isaiah and Jeremiah and did work in the fathers. And he is uh, identified by Amandus Polanus as one of the earliest reformed covenant theologians. And he gets it, at least in part, from the fathers. Right. Calvin's reading the fathers. A lot of our guys are going back and reading the fathers. And one of the early Christian theologians who uses covenant in a fairly extensive way, arguably the most important, in a sense, seminal writers on this, is a text called Barnabas. Can you tell us a little bit about Barnabas? Barnabas is one of the apostolic fathers, and the collection known as the apostolic fathers really came into its own in the days of J.B. Lightfoot in the late 19th century. Lightfoot was trying to come up with an argument. In his time, it was very common for liberal, especially German scholars, to argue that most of the New Testament was a product of the second century, and some of it of the late second century. And Lightfoot was trying to figure out, can I find a historical terminus after which it is really not plausible to say that the New Testament writings were written. And he said, what I need to find is I need to find writings that I can date in history with some degree of confidence that are citing New Testament documents. Therefore, the New Testament has to exist before those writings. And so this body of writings, the Apostolic Fathers, he actually did a translation of it. It's been retranslated probably four times since then. There's a nice edition that Michael Holmes has done. With the Greek on one side and a New English translation on the other. It all started with Lightfoot. But the theological importance of these documents is very, very significant. And one of the things is they are interacting with Jewish claims that deny that Christians are the recipients of the Abrahamic promises, which the New Testament everywhere affirms. Uh, Now, which promises? The The Abrahamic. Yeah. That's hugely important. It's very important. And Luke starts that way. Luke starts out describing the coming of Christ as the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promises. Barnabas is trying to persuade his readers that Christians are heirs of Abraham, and he uses Abraham as the way to unify all of redemptive history. Right. That is a basic Christian impulse. And if that sounds odd to you, it's because perhaps the tradition in which you are is disconnected from that. Yeah. You know, when I read Barnabas, after I read you and then I read Barnabas, and I thought, holy mackerel, if I didn't know better, I'd think, 
that a 16th century person wrote Barnabas. It's really amazing. It's like reading Diognetus, right? Yes. Every time I read Diognetus, or we go through it in class, and I talk about it with the students, and I say, I know where they found this text, and it wasn't in the 16th century. It was in a fish shop in Constantinople, I think in the 15th century. So I know a Lutheran didn't write this. But if I didn't know that, I'd say, oh, this was forged by a Lutheran. It sounds like one. But it's written in 150 AD. Yeah. It's important for the listener to understand that our theology is really, in important ways, patristic theology, right? This is important for people who are, for example, listener, you know people, or maybe you are, tempted to look at the Roman communion or one of the Eastern Orthodox communions because you're looking for antiquity, a connection to the past, for stability, for tradition. And I'm sorry that we haven't communicated this to you, but our theology, piety, and practice is rooted in the second century. exactly right. And there, there were no popes in the second century. There weren't seven sacraments in the second century. And nobody was using icons in the second century. You know whose worship looked like that in the 16th century? It was ours in Geneva and in Edinburgh and in London and in Heidelberg and in Zurich. Here, that, that. here <laughs> endeth the rant. But, QED. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. But I mean, you're reading Barnabas and seeing your covenant theology. What you knew heretofore right. is your covenant theology. And seeing genetic connections, you know, from Barnabas and Melito and mm-hmm. Justin and Irenaeus and Tertullian. There's a whole theological conversation. Augustine in the City of God says in chapter 16, what is it, 23 or 27? Basically, I'm paraphrasing here. Of course, there's a covenant with Adam before the fall. What do you think Hosea 6-7 means? <laughs> right? I mean, so in the early 5th century, it's just a given that there's a prelapsarian right. covenant, right. which is in our state, right, post-Bart, right. where we're sort of scrapping and trying to defend the very idea of a covenant of works, to contrast that with Augustine who says, of course there's one. Yes. And who knows that Augustine assumed there was and that many people assumed there was. Yes. There's just more there than people care to appreciate. And I think part of it is just a general ignorance of the area. Protestants in the last hundred years have not paid close attention to patristic scholarship. 19th century Presbyterians knew patristic studies. I think part of that is the languages, yeah. Scott. I mean, Latin and Greek would have been assumed for seminary students and certainly for professors in those days. And they didn't just know Koine. Yeah. They knew classical classical Greek. They knew some patristic Greek. They'd read a lot. And so they were familiar with the sources. Now, that was a joy for me to go back and rediscover that part of a heritage that I didn't know about until seminary. And uh, it's become a favorite area and era of mine. So you're thinking about seminary, but you're asking yourself, where will I live in Escondido? Westminster Seminary, California has good news. We've completed Westminster Village, a beautiful new place for you to live on campus. Open now, Westminster Village features eight residential buildings, 64 apartments, including one, two, and three bedroom units, and a commons where seminary families can fellowship together. Here's Joel Kim president of Westminster Seminary, California, on the benefits of Westminster Village. Escondido is a beautiful place in which to live, but students wonder if they can actually afford it. Our goal is to benefit the students by providing a beautiful but affordable place to live on campus. In addition, we believe that learning happens not only in the classroom, but also by living together in community. Just as lifelong learning begins in the classroom, so lifelong relationships will begin in our new residential village. For more information, 
called toll-free, 888-480-8474. That's 888-480-8474. Or visit us online at wscal.edu. That's wscal.edu. And ask us about our new residential village. wscal.edu, 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California. For Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. Two things I want to hit before we run out of time. First, one of the things that is said about Barnabas and about covenant theology generally is that it is replacement theology. And for some unfortunate reasons, that discussion has reemerged in the last, let's say, month or so. And people making that point, well, of course, X happened because they have a replacement theology. And I know you've been saying this, and I've been saying this for you know as loudly and as long as I can. Taint true, McGee, that we don't teach a replacement theology. But just in case the listener doesn't know. What is he talking about? What is replacement theology and why is it wrong? I need to ask you the question on when the origin of that terminology came up. That and supersessionism are two terms that I want to find out who's the first person to use those. But they definitely emanates from dispensational circles. So these are dispensational criticisms of covenant theology. Saying a covenant theology says that the church replaced Israel, the church superseded Israel, and that therefore, you know, there's no longer any place for Israel or the Jews in the purposes of God. And of course, there are several different ways you can respond to that. One is to say, well, actually, covenant theology is fulfillment theology, not replacement theology. Say that again. Covenant theology is fulfillment theology. Covenant theology is fulfillment theology, not replacement theology, not supersession theology. And we believe that the church is made up of believing Jews and Gentiles. It's, you know, we are united to Christ for salvation, whether you're Jew or Greek, slave or free, you know. We believe in Romans 11. 12, right. 13, 14. Right. right. Now, Reformed people have given different explanations as to exactly what is expected, but there's an honorable Reformed tradition that says there'll be a great ingathering yes. of Jews to Christ in the last days. And that may well be true. And it's widely held in Reformed theology. Certainly, we all agree that all the elect, Jew and Gentile, will be given new life, given true faith, and brought to faith and union with Christ. Right. But one of the grounds of the criticism is if you don't have have a two-track soteriology, an earthly people and a heavenly people. And if you don't have a future for Israel sort of outside of Christ, ergo, you're anti-Semitic and you have a supersessionist theology. I know you hear this critique, so how do you respond? Several things. Partly what you've just said, say, for instance, today, the oldest existing mission to the Jewish people in the world today was started by Presbyterians, Mm. Christian witness to Israel. Robert Murray Mitchane was Mm. the founder. C.H. Spurgeon would become a part of that. And so there was a great desire to reach out with the Jewish people for the gospel. Certainly, it's true that the medieval Catholic Church had a very spotty record in terms of its relationship with the Jewish communities, but the Protestant relationship to Jewish people, especially from the 19th century on, is a better story than you find in medieval history, and there's a great desire to bear witness to the Jewish people. So it's not anti-Semitism. It's about what the New Testament says the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise is. for the conversion of people outside of Christ, whether Jewish or Gentile, that shouldn't be controversial. Right. Right. And so if somebody is postulating, well, you can, you know, have a relationship to God apart from Christ, that's not our problem. 
that is a view that places one outside of the boundaries of historic Christian orthodoxy. Right. So, yeah, we're not replacement theologians. Yeah. I wish people would stop saying that. And if you know people who are saying that, you know, tell them to stop saying it. <laughs> Ask them to listen to this episode and uh, we can point you to lots of resources that will um, help folks see that it's not so. Anyway, so I appreciate that and I think of it particularly in regard to Barnabas because that charge has been leveled against Barnabas. He's in a different setting than we are. We live after Auschwitz. He lived long before. When Barnabas was writing, broadly speaking, the Jews had cultural leverage and authority and the Christians were marginal. And so he's having to defend, in a sense, his very existence, his life is on the line. And so he does use some fairly strong language, but it has to be read in that context, and it has to be read carefully. And he actually knew Jewish people. Yeah. That's another thing that theologians and historians will pay close attention to is, you know, to what extent do people talking about these issues actually know Jewish people? Yeah. And because of the matrix of early Christianity and the close relationship that it had to the synagogue, especially there in the second century, the conversations that are had between Christian and Jews are between two people that know one another and live with one another. Yes, in close and that's, proximity. It's very different than theoretically talking about Jewish people that you've never ever met. Exactly. Now, these are small towns, right? These right. cities that we talk about, for the most part, are what we would consider very small towns. And um, academies and the institutions are very small institutions. And uh, basically, you've got a rabbi going to the civil authorities and saying, hey, you have some of these disreputable Christians in town, and this is the kind of thing that they say, and they worship a crucified criminal and so forth. And then the Christians are having to respond by saying, well, no, hold on there. That's not an accurate representation of what we're saying. So the reader can get a copy of the Apostolic Fathers. Again, this is beginning in the 19th century and maybe a little bit before. These are documents that are compiled in the modern period. You can't go in the second century and look for a collection of documents. But it's a valuable collection. And so you'll notice that it varies. Some collections will have this document and some collections won't. But they always have uh, Barnabas, pretty much always have Diognetus and Clement and Ignatius and that sort of thing. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. One last thing, and that is this. You have engaged over the years the questions of theonomy and Christian Reconstructionism. So I think that's interesting because a lot of people haven't done that, haven't been willing to. They think about it, they talk about it, but they haven't been willing to write much about it. So tell us briefly, what is it that caused you to write that piece and maybe bring us up to date where you are on that and yeah. where you see that discussion, because I think it's interesting relative to some of the discussions we're having about social justice, for example. I got interested in that, Scott, in the 1980s. You will know all the dates, but in 1978, Greg Bonson wrote a book called Theonomy and Christian Ethics. It went through a couple of editions, but 78 was the first time it came out, and he was a professor at Reform Seminary in Jackson and a student to some extent of Rush Dooney, and back in those days, the names are J. Rush Dooney, Gary North, um, Gary DeMar, Gary DeMar, Jim Jordan. They were known as sort of the theonomists or the reconstructionists of the day. And because I'd studied with Palmer Robertson, who had not only crossed swords with Norman Shepard at Westminster, and I was very interested in the Shepard controversy, but he had also engaged with theonomic thought from a more classic reform perspective. You'll know this, but he always told us Fairbairn's book, The Revelation of Law in Scripture. He said, go sell all you have and read <laughs> Fairbairn. And so, I mean, I did 
that. I went out yeah. and I got hold of Fairbairn, and of course, Fairbairn, very different take on the law than you got from the Reconstructionists. Looking back now, I realize, aha, you know, actually what they were trying to do is they were trying to come up with some sort of a theological argument for positions of the Christian right in their own time. Oh, and it was interesting that Jim Kennedy and Pat Robertson were attracted to some of those writings as a part of their Christian America stuff. Sure. You and know? there were interchanges and people serving in institutions together, committees together. So Christian Reconstruction very quickly is the view that there's a coming societal collapse, and yeah. out of this collapse will arise, like a phoenix, a Christian Reconstruction of society. And they were writing the agenda for this future Christian Reconstruction. It's usually fueled by a pretty strong, relatively modern kind of post-millennialism, yeah. looking for a glorious rule of Christ on the earth before the return of Jesus. And R.J. Rushduni wrote three volumes, many, many books, but three volumes, Institutes of uh, Biblical Law. Biblical law. Yeah. I call it a Protestant Talmud. Yeah. Right? If a Protestant sat down to do a Talmud, it would look a lot like Rushduni, and yet he rejected key portions of Reformed theology as he did this. And then, um, as you say, Bonson wrote the textbook on theonomy per se, which very briefly is the abiding validity of the civil law right. in exhaustive detail, which is, in my view, and I don't know if you share this, is a pretty much a flat contradiction of the Westminster Confession, right, 21.4. It simply ignores that key verb there, expired, and then pretty radically retranslates or redefines the general equity thereof to mean yeah. whatever Rabbi Rusas says, whatever Rabbi Gary says, yeah. or what have you. Yeah. He tries to get back what you would lose with the verb expired with general equity. Yeah. And I have tried to show how, first of all, that's not an accurate understanding of what the divines were saying. And it doesn't reflect Reformed Protestant scholastic thought even mm -hmm. on civil law. No. In fact, I argue they've got more of an Anabaptist kind of thing going on, ironically, you know, than reform. Because the appeal is we're the super reform guys. But actually, it's more like Thomas Munzer than it is like Samuel Rutherford. So. I didn't know you said that. I say that to my students. So we reach, listener, we reach these conclusions independent of each other. I, I tell them the, because if you know Munzer's theology yeah. and you know their eschatology and you read the Second Helvetic Confession, chapter 11 actually has a section where Bullinger addresses Jewish golden dreams of a golden age on right. the earth. And some of them were actually talking about the reinstitution of the Mosaic right. system. Absolutely. Isn't that amazing? So I do think, and I, and I have thought over the last 10 years how that continues to be relevant. And I think a lot of it is even reform people have not thought out very carefully the role of the believer in civil society and how to operate principially as a Christian in a pluralistic context. Somewhere between dominion and escape. Right, exactly. And dominion, it's so neat and easy. It's just find the text, <laughs> apply it, you know. And, um, and once you're in charge, there's not a lot of negotiating to go on, right? <laughs> you just start dictating, <laughs> exactly. right? We're going to do this, so we're going to do yeah. that. And so, again, because of historical theology, I became interested at the political developments of Presbyterianism since the time of the Scottish Reformation up until the time of the American Revolution, where you have very different political theories 
theories about how the Christian social involvement should look very different from theonomy. And so I studied that, and uh, my first professional paper was actually at the uh, Social Science History Association, and I presented at a theonomist who was actually teaching at Pat Robertson School. A guy named Joe Kikasola was my respondent at that paper. So I've been interested in that over time. And of course, as you know, one of the interesting things that happened after that time frame, after the late 1980s, theonomy kind of fragmented and went in different directions. Some of it went in the direction of the federal vision. Some of it went in the direction of an almost Eastern Orthodox view of liturgy. It fragmented in really funny different directions. Some of it continued to be culture-focused, but it ran beneath the radar. But it would pop up in strange places in alt-right you know, sort of circles here and there. But it's still out there, and it lets me know that's still a part of the job we need to do as confessional Reformed professors. We need to make sure that our people actually understand what historic confessional Reformed folk think about the role of the believer in civil society. Most recently, I noticed a sort of coalescence, very public coalescence, between a fairly notable, outspoken proponent of theonomy defending certain folks that we might call or some might call social justice yeah. warriors. Yeah. And so there's almost a coalescence between sort of a theonomy of the right yeah. and a theonomy of the uh, left that's very legal, yeah. very yeah. eschatological, right? Yeah. So that's why I think what you did then and what you're saying now is yeah, still— Yeah, it needs to be repurposed for our current situation, but I think there's ongoing relevance. Still relevant. Yeah. Well, it has been great to have you here. I know the faculty enjoyed spending some time with you at lunch, and I know Joel is encouraged to have somebody here on campus with whom he can commiserate because you, you guys have a, a difficult job funding and organizing and overseeing a theological education. Last thing, what is it that encourages you as you look out over the state of theological education and maybe even the state of the Reformed and Presbyterian churches? How are you encouraged? One way that I'm encouraged is just to see the confessional Reformed movement growing all over the world. I get to be on every continent about once every 18 months. And, you know, thankfully, the mainstream media doesn't know about this, but confessional Reformed theology is growing everywhere I go, whether you are talking about Southeast Asia. Asia, whether you're talking about South America, whether you're talking about Africa, India, Reformed theology is growing, and that's very encouraging. And it's amazing how these young people actually come into contact with Reform. I've been in contexts which are dominated by health and wealth theology, prosperity gospel teaching, where somehow Reformed theology has sprouted up. And you just say, God, you are sovereign. How could this happen? I was in the townships of South Africa about five years ago. I was in both Johannesburg and in Cape Town, and two young black South Africans came up to me and just on fire about Reformed theology. And Mm. they had started something with the blessing of their pastor and elders called Township Reformation, where they were trying to go church to church to tell the news of the Reformed faith. And we're seeing some success. Another interesting story, a young man there that I met in Cape Town had been in the Assemblies of God, but had come into contact with Reformed theology. And he was being mentored by his pastor to become an Assemblies of God pastor, but he contracted Reformed theology. His pastor was tragic murdered. You know, the townships are a dangerous place. He Mm. was murdered and the congregation came to this young man who was that time 20, 21, 22 years old. And they said, we know our pastor has been mentoring you. We want you to become our new pastor. And this Mm. is a congregation of several thousand people. Wow. And he said, I can't. And they said, 
why? He said, well, because I'm reformed. And they said, what's that? And so <laughs> well, he tried you know, yeah, as best as he could to explain you. reformed theology. And they said, well, do you still believe in Jesus? <laughs> yes. yes. Do, well, do you still believe in the gospel? Yes. Well, you be our pastor. <laughs> and he said, he said well, finally, he relented. And he said, look, I will need to tell the district superintendent of the Assemblies of God what I believe, just to have integrity. Sure. Long story short, Scott, is that church is now an independent reformed church in the middle of the townships wow. of Cape Town. That's amazing. And, you know, I hope they're able to affiliate with a Bible-believing reformed denomination. But I see stuff like that that happening everywhere I go. That's very encouraging to me. And in theological education, here's the thing. Institutions like the ones that we serve, we will be the last ones left. (laughs) Um, I mean, honestly, uh, partly liberal mainline institutions are plummeting in enrollment right now. Because of their endowments, they'll be open a long time, but they won't have any students. Students. Uh, Listener, that's actually literally happening. They're old-time liberal theological institutions, one of which is pretty well known, has no students, but they write manuals about how to do theological education. It's true. And that is the case. And here in the United States, North America as a whole, even Roman Catholic and Orthodox seminaries are dwindling dramatically in size. Except for the evangelical influx. Well, and of course, they're they're having to to import priests from South America, from Spain, from Ireland, etc., because of the crisis of Catholicism is massive here in North America as well as other places. But institutions like the one that Scott teaches for, institutions like the one I teach for, the Lord has been very kind to continue to bless those efforts. And we're seeing, by God's grace, growth. We're continuing to see support for theological education, ministering in families of churches and denominations that really understand why it's important to have an educated ministry. We'll be the last ones keeping the lights on. And very frankly, the stand, let me just pat Scott on the back, the standard of education that a person will receive here at Westminster, California, there is no comparison. If you went to Ivy League divinity schools, their students would not be able to handle the kind of academic requirements that you find here at Westminster, California. Well, they're not I think getting a lot of people don't know it. Yeah, that's Whatever right. their abilities, they aren't getting it. You, know, you right. were just telling us that a very well-known divinity yeah. school requires three hours of language instruction. We require 20 hours, yeah. and I'm sure you do as yeah. well. We actually, as you do, expect our students when they graduate to be able to open their Greek and Hebrew Bibles and to actually be able to read it. Not, right. not to use Bible software, but to look at it and say, I know what that means. I know why that says what that says, and I know how to understand that. Or if I don't fully, I know how to do it. I know how to work it out. That's exactly right. And we've set them on a path for the rest of their lives to be able to work in the original languages, particularly as they're preaching, right, and doing their work, just as you did for 17 years as a minister at First yeah. Pres in Jackson. And you know, it's because we care about what the Bible says. Yeah. You know, We want to know what it says because we really think that it's the only rule of faith and practice. And we love our listeners and we love God's people. And that's what they need to be hearing is the law and the gospel as it's actually found in Scripture. Well, Nick, thank you so much for your time. It's been very edifying for us to have you here. We're grateful. Great to be with you, Scott. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.